Let's talk about that speech with Claire and Rachel. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Let's Talk About Speech podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Claire. And we're back for another episode. Last week, we talked all about the SLP's role in literacy. It was such a great episode, and we even had a very special guest on. So if you haven't had a chance to take a listen to that, stop, go listen, and then come back. And then today we are talking about behavior management. So this has been on our list for a while, I feel like. And I mean, this is something that you will experience with any age client that you have, even adults. So you've always got to manage behavior, no matter what's thrown at you. Um, And I think that Rachel and I have some pretty good ideas we want to share with you guys, as well as maybe some stories of some of our own experiences, good and bad, maybe. Um, So the first thing we want to talk about is behavior management with new clients. So especially if you are like new grads or CFs out there, um, you're going to be having a whole new caseload and every single client is new to you. So it's really important that you put that behavior management at like the tippy top of your list um, because you need to get to know the client and their needs before you can make any progress with therapy. So I think it's really important to like trial and error things. And Rachel, I don't know about you, but I feel like I go through multiple different behavior oh, yeah. strategies, whether that be like visual, verbal, any, anything regardless Mm -hmm. of their age. Again, I go through a lot of trials to see like what they react to the best. And sometimes it takes a little bit. So I think patience with the trial and error is key because you will find something, but I know when I was a CF, especially, I felt like sometimes it took me almost half the year to figure a kid out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's just the way it was. Totally. I feel like trial and error. I think it's so important that you mentioned that first, because this can be like managing behaviors as a whole can be really frustrating, right? Because as an SLP and like in grad school, it's like driven into your head, data, 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 and this is what we're doing and there's goals and this is, you know, I have to get this done. But also like if you're being met with behavior, you have to address that first because if you don't, right, you're not moving forward. Right, exactly. Um, And I did want to mention, that there seems to be an extreme lack of and or like just it's completely absent um, behavior management courses in graduate school. I tried to do some research and I couldn't even find a single graduate class um, tied to behavior management in, um, and I mean, I was digging pretty deep and I feel like that kind of goes hand in hand with I know we've talked about frequently the lack of like counseling classes. I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah. I feel like that would be such a good kind of like mix up for those two, but I could not find anything. I know. Didn't our program after we left have an autism course, like just autism? Yes. And I think that's so important because at our um, graduate school specifically, you could have an entire, um, like summer internship Mm -hmm. placement at a center for autism. And I think a lot of people were met with pretty extreme behaviors there. And I feel like that was definitely a need. Yeah. And so I think they probably touched on it in autism Mm -hmm. in like a class, but that's not the only kids that show behaviors. Like, I feel like sometimes we think about it 
like that. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm dealing or I have somebody on the autism spectrum on my caseload. So I know I have to deal with behaviors because that's often what comes with Mm -hmm. that diagnosis, um, whatever those behaviors may be. But every single one of my clients, regardless of their diagnosis, has behavior something. So I think there needs to be more out there. I agree on just overall strategies and even just widespread strategies for like other types of clients. Cause mm-hmm. I think that not things that work with kids on the autism spectrum are not going to work with kids who are, who have LD or mm-hmm. a- any other kid that you're working with. So, yeah. so if you're listening and your graduate program did have a course oh, on this, or even like, you know, like a dedicated section of a course on behavior management, um, kind of tied in with counseling, please DM us or email us because we would love to kind of pick your brain on how they approach that and kind of what tools they gave you to prepare as a clinician. Yeah, absolutely. So some other broad things to keep in mind with behavior management, especially with new clients, is that it's very client specific. So we've said like, there's tons of different ways that you can manage behavior, but it also really has to be tailored to the client and their specific needs. Um, I've also found that the same strategies or the same things that I'm implementing as far as schedules or reactions or verbal input that I'm giving them doesn't always work every single day I see them. So sometimes you really have to be flexible and have a toolbox of strategies in your back pocket to pull out just in case. Um, I know working in a school is great for this, I feel like, because I always had like um, pecs at my disposal disposal versus here, like in a clinic, mm-hmm. I feel like I don't use that as much. Um, I felt like the, especially like the special education teachers were really good about helping me mm-hmm. know what behavior management strategies worked with each client. Um, and they gave me a lot of ideas for that. So I think working in a school is, is really a really good place to learn a lot of strategies because the teachers help you so much with that. Totally. And um, that, oh God, oh, sorry. I was just, last thing I was going to say is just being flexible. Um, I tell my student, my graduate students this all the time. Like, unfortunately being flexible is not something you can teach. Like it's mm-hmm. not, it's not really something we can tell you how to be. You just have to do it and you have to experience it. Like everyone knows what it means to be flexible, but you really just have to practice it and put it into motion for it to become normal to you. Um, I feel like we're all pretty type A, so we'd like things to be a certain way, but we really, in our sessions, have to be flexible, especially with behavior. Definitely. All I was going to say was just the biggest thing to remember, and my principal's really good at reminding everyone of this, I think probably because of the school that I'm at, we're in a very low income high poverty area and we have lots of behaviors, but the biggest thing to remember is that behavior is communication. So someone's um, not just acting out to act out, right? Like there's a reason behind what, why they're doing that. So I cannot stress enough, like how important it is to really build that rapport with your client. Um, I've only really had to work on the behavior management aspect from um, like the child perspective. I did a little bit in, uh, when I was in my acute care placement in graduate school, but that was really just adults not thinking that they needed to work on something. Mm-hmm. Um, almost like the buy-in that's like, yeah. it, honestly, that's the biggest thing with adults is the mm-hmm. buy-in. Like you've totally. got to 
and I know you're going to talk about this, Rachel, but the rapport with adults is the biggest behavior management I feel like you're going to see. Um, but I love that. If you take nothing else away from this episode, behavior is communication. That's a, such a good, solid point that needs to be made and needs to be remembered. Definitely. So even simple things like remembering your students' interests, like, you know, so-and-so loves Ninja Turtles, or you know that, you know, one student plays on a football team and he has games on Saturdays. So first thing when you see him Monday, that would be a perfect thing to ask him is how his weekend went. Or, you know, that, you know, one of your students' moms is having a baby and you can talk to them about that. You never know, you're never going to know what the root of, you know, their like anger or frustration is about if you don't build that rapport and have that communication with them. Um, another thing is to find out if they have better times of the day. So do they come into school late consistently and their mornings are really tough because they're already you know, behind in work and feeling really frustrated? Or are they great in the morning and as the day goes on after lunch when we start to feel more squirrely and we've been in our seat for, you know, six plus hours at that point, is that when they start having, you know, bigger outbursts? Um, typically, and I want to say like most frequently, I see behaviors come out when the material that they're working on is more challenging. That's when they start That's to feel nice. defeated. Um, and that's always when you can remind yourself to make sure you're meeting them at an appropriate level. So I have a graduate student right now and she was feeling a little confused as to where to start with a given goal. Um, and I write all of my goals based on instructional level instead of grade level, because just because they're in third grade does not mean they're reading at a third grade level. They might be reading at a kindergarten level. So when you include the phrase instructional level in their goals, it really already kind of meets them where they're at. And just kind of as a rule of thumb, if I don't know where to start, I always start two grade levels below. So for example, if they're working on, you know, like WH questions following a short story read aloud, I'll start at the first grade level, read that story. If they fly through it, great, no big deal. You just move up and go to second grade. If you find that it's a little challenging for them, but they can get some of it, you're probably at the right level. If it's still way too hard, then you back it down. It's, it's so fluid. And like Claire said, that's kind of where that trial and error piece comes in. But just, just remember that, you know, behavior is communication. There's a reason that they're getting upset. And that goes along with adults too. I think that's another huge thing to remember with adults is to start where they're at because it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. If you have a client that comes to you with aphasia and you're working on repetition mm -hmm. and they can't repeat like two word responses, but they can kind of like 50% repeat one word. Mm -hmm. That's where you start. You, you need to build on what they have. You can't just write a goal or start working at a place where they're at 0% and they just can't do that skill. You need to start with something that they have. Um, and I think that's across the lifespan. One thing, another thing I just wanted to stress because my, I, it's fresh in my mind working with my grad student is remembering to sometimes we kind of get in this motion of like drilling them, not necessarily in the right. thought of like, you know, drilling articulation words, but 
you ask them a question, they give an answer. You ask them a question, you give them an answer. Yeah, we get in this like quiz habit, remembering that we have to teach what we want them to learn. Therapy. Yeah, yeah, like that's the, the true therapy aspect of that, because really that quiz is really like a diagnostic measure to right. see how are they doing with that material. So just, I wanted to stress that yeah, too. That quiz is really, I mean, that's where your data comes from, right? But you can't take data without teaching them the skill. If they don't right. know the skill, you're going to get behaviors because they don't know what you're wanting them to do. Mm-hmm. So I think knowing what you're teaching and making sure you're teaching it helps decrease behaviors. Yeah. So some different types of behavior management, uh, things that we have in place are the first we're going to talk about is verbal. So verbal behavior management strategies. Um, obviously this is going to depend on the client you work with, but some that I really hone in on and that I talk with my graduate students about is the can you statement. So Mm -hmm. no matter what, because I work with a lot of first year grad students because I'm in a university clinic. So a lot of them will start because that's just, that's just who they are. They're, they're being nice. Mm -hmm. They start with the, can you, can you say your case sound or can you give, can you do this for me? Can you put that, can you put that into a sentence? Like I I can't even tell you how many times a day I hear that. Um, and it's, it's out of a kind place, right? So Mm -hmm. we get why that is said, but you really need to decrease those can you statements and replace it with a, we are going to this or just the plain statement, put it in a sentence, not just get rid of the can you, because it's not a question because I also can't tell you how many times the child has said, no, no, yeah. <laughs> we'll just say, no, you're giving them a yes, no question. Mm-hmm. And when they say, no, what are you going to do? It's kind of awkward. Cause you feel like, like, well, we're doing like, it well, anyway. So. Yeah. Right. And then you're the mean guy yeah. and then you're going to create behaviors. So <laughs> you want to stay on top of it. And a lot of these verbal, you know, a lot of things you can verbally do for behavior management can be proactive to real and same with visual, like any behavior management stuff can be before the behavior actually happens. And I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. So trying to decrease that language that you're giving them to be statements instead of questions, because it is what you're doing. They don't have an option unless mm-hmm. you're giving them a choice would be the only caveat to that. And then going along with that, decreasing the overall language you're giving them. So this goes for adults and children because they, you know, you have to, again, meet them at their level again, with both children and adults, if you are giving them language that they don't understand, I just had a um, conversation with my grad students about this because we were trying to decrease segmentation in the way that they were saying their sounds um, in a word. And they were using the word, or yeah, they were using the vocabulary word smooth to make his sound smooth. And to be honest with you, this kid is kind of cognitively impaired. I don't think he knows what smooth means. So we talked about using visuals for that um, using like, oh, we're going to put our hands together and make it come really close. Like trying to decrease the con the conceptual use of that language, because sometimes kids might not know what you're talking about. Um, and adults too, that you're working with who might be aphasic or lower cognitively impaired, you know, we need to know where their level is so that we can meet them there and not use language that's, that they're not going to understand. And then, um, first then statements is a big one too, that I, really try and have to, I have to remind myself to use this. I really try and use this as much as possible because it really works. Just this goes with decreasing your language too. Instead of saying something like, okay, first we have to do all of our case sounds because we need to work on making your tongue go down. And then we're going to go outside and we're going to jump on the trampoline. 
oh my gosh, it's too much. First work, then play. First work, then break. Literally four words, that's all you need. And I think decreasing that, it just, it lets the child or the adult, it lets them hear and manage that language better. And then they know exactly, and they can remember exactly what's going to happen. Going along with that, I use first then visuals um, all the time. And I think they're super, super helpful. I use first then statements all of the time right now with my two-year-old. Um, I'm saying first eat, then play or whatever it may be. And I seriously feel like I say it 10,000 times a day, but it really does help. And it really gets that point across because like Claire said, when you reduce those words, you can really isolate, oh, I need to do this small task. And then I get to do this small task, whatever it may be. And a lot of times if you pair the first then with um, like a work task and then a reward, it's even yes. more beneficial. Great point. Mm -hmm. um, the last thing I wanted to say for verbal, the verbal aspect of behavior management is one thing we really try and stress in our school is four positive comments to every one negative and or corrective That's comment. Great. I love that. Yeah. And I will say it's hard, right? Because a lot of times you're making those negative comments because behaviors can be disruptive, which we've already mentioned, but flooding them or kind of overloading them with the positives helps so much because I don't care if it's something as simple as they're sitting in their seat. If it's a wiggly kid and they have difficulty focusing, it's really hard for them to sit in their seat for an extended period of time. So if you're sitting in your seat, I want to tell you about it. If you're listening to me and I can tell because your eyes are on my face and you're focused, I want to tell you about it. I I think it's so important to stress four positives to one negative because it's really changed a lot of my sessions and I feel like I'm getting really good, um, you know, therapy because of it. And I remember in grad school learning the, and I still use it to this day, the, I like when you do this, or I love when you do this, because mm -hmm. Rachel, you'll know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. We had a professor who said, stop saying good job to everything because yeah such a broken record, like good job sitting in your seat. Good job doing this. Good job doing this. So using words other than good job, like I like when you do this, or I love when you do this, or it makes me happy when you do this. Mm -hmm. You can say those positive reinforcers in different ways. That's so funny you say that because my grad student has like fully started taking on the caseload. And there's two things she's asked me about this week. And one, that was one of them. She's like, okay, I just keep saying good job and I need to figure out how to change. Isn't it that. funny how we'll never forget that? Never. Like, <laughs> I hope and the other of, thing. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I was just going to say, I hope some of the people in our grad program are listening to this because they'll yes. know exactly what we're talking about too. Yes. Uh, the other thing she was asking about was she, I'll always ask her feedback after each session. Like, mm -hmm. how do you think that went? What do you think we can improve on? And she always says, or she has been saying lately, I need to stop saying, can you? Yeah. And those are like two things that we're touching on right now. Right. So it is, it's real. And again, yeah. both come from such a kind, good yeah. place. They're not like bad things about you. It's just, there's something we need to get more productive with. Definitely. So the next thing we're going to talk about quickly is visuals. So how to give visual behavior management reinforcers, um, schedules are huge, which go along with visuals. Um, I think I, I typically use a lot of visual schedules, especially with 
Um, my kids on the spectrum, especially with my kids who might be a little squirrely. I love that word, by the way, Rachel. And I love Mm -hmm. that you used it. One of my coworkers uses it all the time and I love it. It's just a funny (laughs) word. They're really squirrely, but I I think schedules really depend again on the client you have. So making sure you you use your schedule, but you use it to their level. So if they're just at pictures, great. If they can read the words, great. I use schedules with my adults so that they know exactly what we're doing, but I do it in a way I put it on a whiteboard and I write down words because if I showed them pictures, that's just kind of juvenile for them. We wouldn't Mm -hmm. do that. So make sure your schedules are appropriate for who you're using them for. Um, and make sure that you don't put too much on them is the only other thing I want to say about schedules because I've had times when I, I do this too, again, trial and error, where I put five things on the schedule and it's just too much. It's too much for the child to handle. And they're, they don't even pay attention to it because visually it's too much. So only put what they can handle visually. Yeah. I use these a ton. I feel like I'm literally on board maker every single day. And part of that's probably because the uh, building that I'm in, I have three self-contained rooms. So I have two, um, self-contained rooms with individuals that are cognitively impaired. That's the certification in Michigan. And then I have one room um, where they are emotionally impaired. And so my point in saying that is almost all of those students benefit a lot from visual schedules. I will say there is kind of a debate out there if you use pictures of real life objects versus you know, the little board maker icons or cartoony icons. I don't think one way is right over another. I will say I tend to use board maker symbols, but one thing that really clicked for me um, this year, and I don't know why it took so long, maybe just because it hasn't been, you know, an issue in the past is I use these visuals for schedules a lot, like we're talking about, and frequently on the schedule is what special they're going to, or they're going to eat lunch, or they're going home. And it clicked uh, last week that I don't have any of those visuals around the building. So in front of the gym, I don't have the big gym board maker icon. And by the art room, I didn't have that. So I went through last week and printed out a bunch, like, you know, a regular printer size of paper, like eight by 11 or whatever it is of all of those icons. And I taped them, uh, you know, I laminated them and taped them all around the building and just sent out an email to my whole staff that if you see these icons, please leave them, leave them. Don't, you know, let anyone take them down or kids mess with them. And I've already seen my students like pointing them out. I have the go home one by all of the exit doors and I have the bus one and lunch and whatever it may be. And I don't know why it took so long for that to click, but Mm -hmm. if you guys are using visuals and you think your students would benefit from that, I highly recommend putting them in the spaces that you want them to utilize. Yeah. That's super smart. I love that. Another way I use visuals, um, is feeling. So I did this a lot with the, um, with the younger kids we had in the stuttering camp, actually, Mm -hmm. because kids have a hard time verbalizing their feelings. They have a a really hard time telling you how they're feeling when they're feeling it. So I think, again, the caveat to this is they need to understand what that feeling is. So if you put frustrated, angry, happy, sad, whatever it is you're putting on that, they need to understand that feeling. You can't just show it to them. 
So that needs to be taught. It needs to be implemented. Um, there needs to be, I think some demonstration that they understand what that feeling means. Maybe they're in the motion of being mad and you are pointing to Matt if they're nonverbal and they're able to point to it and you're instilling what that means, but they really need to understand that. So, um, I use this really across the board. I use it with my nonverbal kids. I use it with kids, uh, that I'm working on fluency strategies with, because we do a lot with feelings and identifying feelings. And just my kids that have a hard time managing their feelings, the whole big little feelings. If you don't follow that on Instagram, yes. great account. So but feelings good. are real. And even if you're not directly working on social skills, I think that's a big thing that I learned the last few years is you don't just have to be working on social skills to talk about feelings. Um, you can talk about feelings with your language kids, with your articulation kids, especially if they're having behaviors. And I'll just tell you a story about that later. Um, but sometimes it doesn't have to directly be a goal for you to talk about it and yeah, to have no. a visual for it. Yeah, I've made a, um, not like a whole core board, but kind of like a modified core board specifically on feelings. But I start really small. So Claire, like you were just saying, you have they have to be able to fully understand that. So I start small with like happy, mad, sad and go on from there. Um, I've seen people like go in and tackle like 10 at a time and happy can look very similar to surprised or excited. Like we start to get into synonyms and it starts to just get messy. Right. Um, Frustrated and angry are very yeah, similar. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, so just remembering to keep it small and specific there. The only other visuals I was going to mention was a token board. Um, I We use these pretty frequently in my school. So it's just a visual where you can start out with three, four, or five. And I usually try and make it to my students' interest. So if they're super into, I think I said Ninja Turtles earlier. So I'll have three Ninja Turtle heads that they can earn. And as they earn them, they Velcro them to the board. And above in the center of the board is what they're working for. So whether it's a a prize or um, in my building, we use class dojo so they can earn a dojo point or whatever it may be. So that way they can see the visual of I'm doing what I'm supposed to. I earned one Ninja Turtle. I only have two more to go. I only have one more to go or now I have all of them. So I get my prize. That's a really good visual to help them understand that. An interest that's so big. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, one thing we use in my school is a program called check in, check out. And basically what that is, is you find a mentor in the building for your child and they build a relationship with them and they check in in the morning and then they check out in the afternoon. Sometimes they carry around a sheet and have, um, you know, teachers circle points throughout the day if they're following directions and expectations. But I found that children work really hard for that because they want to um, succeed and do well. And they want to see their total at the end of the day be really high. And of course you can link that to some sort of prize or reward. Um, choice of order is huge for me. So if you're going to do two tasks in your therapy session anyway, let them have a sense of control and ask them which they want to do first, making sure they understand that they will have to do both, obviously going back to the can you, but let them pick if we're going to do articulation words first, or we're going to build sentences first. Um, letting them have that sense of control, I think really helps. 
as far as visuals, my only last one is using timers, sand timers. I also have ooze tubes, which are similar to sand timers, but they have slime in them. So they can see the visual of maybe they just need two minutes to calm down. I think in the target dollar spot in the beginning of the year, I got this really awesome set of like a minute, two minute, five minute and 10 minute sand timers. And those have been huge. So just having them take the sand timer, flip it. If they need a one minute or two minute break, let them have it. We're not talking during that time. They're taking that time to kind of gather themselves and then we come back to the activity. That sense of control to Rachel that you said is something I drill to my students because I so often see games like when you're, when you're incorporating a game into a therapy session and you set it in front of you and the kid has full sight and tactile, like they can do anything with it. They have full access to this game. They're going to mess with the pieces and they're going to not necessarily do bad behaviors, but they're not going to be listening to you. So to manage that a little bit better, trying to make sure that you control the environment also. Um, so hide the pieces, give them one piece at a time, hide the entire thing until they do what you want them to do. Uh, that's a huge thing to help proactively decrease behaviors because they're going to get angry at you. If you take them all, if you grab all the pieces out of their hand, but trying to make sure that you keep it behind you first is, is really important and helpful. Definitely. Um, Claire and I thought it would be really fun to share some stories, mm -hmm. but before we dive into that really, really quickly, I wanted to touch on this awesome publication that Asha made. I think it was earlier this year, maybe 2020, but it was all about tailoring effective behavior management strategies for SLPs. Um, we can share the link if you guys are interested, but they found their kind of overall conclusion was that visual activity schedules, which we just touched on, and behavior-specific praise, so going back to that four positives for every one negative, are two super flexible behavior management strategies that can be used with SLPs and educators as a whole to um, provide successful outcomes. So I thought that was perfect and kind of went hand in hand with what we were talking about. Yeah, I love that. Um, I the story I'll share <clears throat> is I have a kid who we've tried all the behavior strategies in the book for, um, and <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. You're okay. <laughs> he actually is a, where he's being treated for childhood apraxia of speech. So mm -hmm. he's a speech sound kid. Other diagnoses we think might be there, but are not confirmed. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Interesting. And, so a lot going on. Yeah. A lot going on emotionally. I think he just, he has a really hard time managing his emotions and therefore he reacts. And when he reacts, he reacts big and loud and inappropriately. So anyways, um, we've incorporated a lot of different things. And the most recent thing that we actually, I can't believe we didn't touch on that. He's actually really responded to his social stories. Oh yeah. He found that he really, he really likes to be given rules. Like this is the way we do things. Again, going back to the, can you statements? We, I had students before that would ask, do kind of like the, um, like the buy-in and try mm -hmm. and, and like reason with him. Like, well, can we just do this? And then we'll do this. And he doesn't like that. He, he likes to be told what to do. 
um, because then he knows what to expect. And so we've, we've started using a social story at the beginning that talks about um, respect and talks about interruptions. So those are two that we kind of hone in on as the behavior strategies that we want to target at this time anyway. There are other things we could, but that at this time is what we're targeting. And then we also use a visual schedule and it's really, really helped. Um, there are days though, I want to say like nobody is perfect with behavior management. Um, a couple days ago, he ran out of the room and was like trying to hide under the trampoline. And when he got out from under it, he like spit in my face because yeah. he just was upset. And that's, that's fine. And you know, it, I shouldn't even say he was upset. He was he was frustrated. Um, and visually he was, he was trying to get a reaction Mm -hmm. because he laughed when he did it. So he wasn't even like crying and mad. He just, he was trying to get a reaction because his emotions were everywhere. I've had those days very frequently. And so I tell you this because like, this is a kid who I think I have it all together with. And I know I do, like, I know what to do to help him, but there are some days where it just isn't working and where honestly, there's not a lot that does work. Um, and you just kind of have to take those days in stride. And I think the biggest thing my grad students ask me is like, okay, when do you kind of give in a little bit? Because we only have 50 minutes with our clients. Mm -hmm. And I struggle with that. And Rachel, I don't know what you think about that because sometimes I feel like even though I don't want to give in, I have to, because I don't have the time to waste. So I give in and give them maybe what they want, or I reason with them a little more than I should. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I I hate saying this, but I don't make them like pay for the behaviors Mm -hmm. they're, they're making. Um, but it's just, I don't know. It's hard because you have to find a balance and you have to find, what works for them. But when it doesn't, because it won't, sometimes you also have to give yourself a little grace and not beat yourself up. If you do give in, because sometimes that's just what you have to do to survive it. Totally. I have been there and it's a little different with me because I'm in a school. I can check in with them throughout the week, but I get the limited time. If you're just with them for the one day a week, it's hard sometimes. And Mm -hmm. sometimes you just got to go with it. Yeah. My, this isn't, directly related to behavior, but it is. Um, Going back to that token board uh, example of what you're working for, I have a student that loves to hold like a little string of tissue paper. It's kind of like um, that like uh, Easter basket string. Mm, He loves to hold that in front of a fan or a vent in the hallway to like watch it flutter up in the air. So I have literally taken a picture of that, like the vent in the hallway. And that is what we're working for. And as silly as it sounds, it works. And there are so many things, take it, do whatever you need to do. I've done weird things like that too, where it's Mm -hmm. like, it doesn't seem like it's a reinforcer, but it is because it's what they want to do and take that and use it. It doesn't have to be candy or a toy. It's whatever motivates them. Definitely. That's awesome. All right, guys, that's all we have for you. Uh, Shoot us your ideas for effective behavior management that's been super helpful for you. And we would love to hear and share your ideas. Thanks, guys. Bye. Well, guys, that wraps up this episode. Thank you again so much for joining us. And as always, you can find me, Rachel, on Instagram at supersweetspeech. And if you or anyone you know is in need of speech therapy in Southeast Michigan, feel free to email me at speechissupersweet at gmail.com. And you can also follow the Let's Talk About Speech podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. So make sure you give those a like and a follow.
And you can find me, Claire, on Instagram at kindly underscore speech or my Facebook page, Kindly Speech LLC. And if anyone in the Ohio area is in need of speech teletherapy, please contact me, kindlyspeechllc at gmail.com. Rachel and I also have an email for the podcast that you can email us with suggestions or if you or someone you know wants to be on the podcast, that's let's talk about speech podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.